Welcome back to the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat series. I am your host, Greg Knuckles. Uh, Thanks for coming back to this, the eighth installment of the Fireside Chat series. Uh, If this is the first one you're tuning into and you're expecting a lot of discussion of fitness and science and the things we cover on the normal episodes, uh, you're not going to find it here. We're just going to talk about fun things that our listeners have suggested. These are uh, at least supposed to be pretty fun, lighthearted episodes where we discuss uh, off-topic subjects. So uh, yeah, that's what we're doing here, and I figure we'll get on into it. How are you doing today, Trex? I am doing well, and quick, uh, quick message for those who have caught our previous Fireside Chats. The last couple times, our off-topic topics have been very on-topic, but, <laughs> but this time, we actually are uh, getting away from that stuff. Very off-topic today. Yes. Hopefully, I mean, we'll probably accidentally find a way to get on topic. Oh. I'm, I'm looking at... <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the uh, the second question here uh, in some of the notes you've jotted down, so we'll see what happens. Uh, but yeah, let's let's get right on into it. Uh, the first question that came in from one of our listeners is, uh, what is the best way to motivate yourself? Or I guess how we're going to answer it, how do we go about motivating ourselves? So motivation's tough, and, and I don't purport to have any expertise on this, like I... I've never read the motivation literature, uh, but I am a person who has at times needed to become motivated. And what has always worked for me is, this is kind of a cop-out, but just trying to limit how much effortful motivation I really have to conjure up. So, um, you know, I think we're pretty lucky given that most of the tasks we have to do are things that interest us and things that we believe should be done. Like we don't have some like higher up boss who's just telling us to do busy work. Yeah. Aside from Lindsay. Yeah. um, Who can be very tough. But, (laughs) but no, I mean, so most of the stuff we do, we're passionate about it and we think it really ought to be done. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. So that stuff's pretty easy. But, you know, going back to times where I have needed to kind of dig deep and figure out how to how to get myself in the mindset to get something done. What I like to do is kind of reframe the task and find a motivation that makes sense to me. So like if you're not motivated about doing the task for its sake, you know, so it's something that you're not passionate about, maybe you don't even think it really should be done. You have to find a way that it makes sense for you to actually be doing it. And so sometimes it might be, Honestly, uh, (laughs) you might be kind of deluding yourself into thinking that it makes sense. But like for me, that's always been the way to do it. I have to understand that for me personally, there's a reason why it makes sense for me to be working on this. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, for, for me, that's been the easiest way to do it. And I can usually find some justification like it's better for me to do this than to not do it or Mm -hmm. to procrastinate. And so however you have to kind of weave a narrative to make that work, that's been my go-to. It's pretty similar for me. Um, On a day-to-day basis, there aren't that many things I have to do that I just really, really don't want to do. Um, But yeah, for, for the things that I don't have that much intrinsic motivation to do that, that I have to, uh, you know, just, put the nose to the grindstone and get done. 
Um, early on in my fitness career, I guess, uh, the biggest motivation was, was probably to not wind up living under a bridge somewhere. Um, so like, I mean, I, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but fresh out of school, didn't have much money, weren't making a ton of money. Um, and so especially for like getting the coaching business off the ground, uh, a lot of that was just like, look, I need to make some money or things are going to be really tight. Um, and also like we didn't understand how tax law worked at all. <laughs> so I was just dreading April coming. I was like, shit, we need to make a lot of money. Cause I have no idea how big the tax bill to uncle Sam's going to be. Um, so like we had that sense of impending dread of like, we don't know how much money we need to make, but like, there's a good chance that we'll be homeless in April if we don't make it. <laughs> so um, that was, yeah, I mean, that was, that was quite a motivator early on. Um, another thing that I think motivates me quite a bit is just like the ability to help people out. And I don't know, like, I don't, I don't really consider myself a humanitarian or anything like that. Um, but like we give a fair amount of money to charity and, uh, like essentially once our, our basic needs are met and we're saving and putting away the amount of money that we want to make, um, beyond that, like we just donate most of it to charity. Um, and so like, yeah, as far as like business stuff goes, um, the more money we make, the more money we have to help other people. Um, and that feels good, you know? Uh, and then the last thing, and honestly, this is probably the biggest one. Um, I am a very goal oriented person. Um, and I like to tick things off my to-do list. That just feels very good to me. And so if there's a task that I really, really don't want to do, um, this is, this is an idea I picked up from James Clear, uh, declare my conflict of interest here. That is my wife's boss. Um, but I picked this up before she worked for him. Um, so like the, the idea is just like just getting started on something. So I think the example he uses in, in his article is like, okay, like if you need, if you know, you need to go for a run, uh, but you're not motivated to do it, like just lace your shoes up and say, I'm just going to take five minutes and go on a little jog. And five minutes later, if you're not just like utterly hating it, yeah, just keep jogging, you know? And if five minutes in, you do utterly hate it, and it's just like really not something you have motivation to do, just quit. And at that point, you've only wasted five minutes, but you know, there is a chance that once you get going, you'll just keep going. And that's, uh, that is pretty much how I am. Like, it's really, really hard for me to get started on stuff sometimes. But then once I get started, uh, I, I just zone out and just keep working until it's done. Um, so yeah, just f for me, like if I can just force myself to get over that hump and get something started, generally I can keep doing it even if I don't find it particularly fun or pleasant. Yeah, I, I was thinking, you know, my answer, it might make more sense if I give an example you know, so I talked about just convincing yourself that something that's not worth your time is definitely worth your time and, and you know, or, or time and effort. Mm -hmm. So I took a course during my PhD that was on muscle signal processing. And like at that point in my PhD, I knew 
what kind of methods I used in my research. And that just wasn't it. I mm-hmm. didn't do muscle signal processing. Um, but I was like, you know what I could do? Like, I have to take this class anyway, and I have to use the software that I think is ridiculous. I'm going to duplicate all of my homework assignments in R just to prove a point to someone. I don't know who. Nobody listened because I was like, dude, this is way better in R. But like, it's just like finding a way to take something where you're like, wow, this is this is not contributing to my anything I'm going to use in the future. But like, okay, but this will be fun and I'll prove a point to myself, I guess. And I'll pick up some skills that might actually be useful because the, mm-hmm. the more the more I do in R, the better I get with it. So it's just that kind of thing of like reframing. But but like you said, like you mentioned, like, oh, the more I do, the more I can give to charity. It's the same kind of concept of like, it's no longer about the task necessarily, but like doing this task brings me closer to doing something else that I really value. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And on a day-to-day basis as well, um, if there's something I, I don't particularly want to do, but I need to get done, uh, when I get it done, I know... So I, I am like a, a classic procrastinator. Um, but like one of the things that helps a lot is I have a lot of things I like to do when I'm not working. And also when I have something big hanging over me, I just enjoy my time that I'm not working less because I know when I get back to work, there's still this task that I need to get done that I hate. Um, and so like, part of it for me is just purely hedonic as well where it's just like there's this thing on my to-do list i fucking hate it but the hours of the day that i spend not working i enjoy them less and they're less pleasurable and less fun because this thing is still hanging over me so just like if i want to enjoy life i need to get this (laughs) shit done um and that's that's i think the biggest thing i use as a motivator to start tasks that i don't particularly want to do yeah, I didn't even think I've never thought of it that way, but I literally did that this morning. Like I was telling you, I I woke up about four hours earlier than I planned to, mm-hmm. but there's been this task hanging over my head that I'm like, I got to do this. So yeah, this whole morning I was doing that exact thing because it's been like the time I'm not working, I'm thinking like, I got to do that at some point, yeah. you know? Yeah. Speaking of doing things, you want to talk about what happens behind the scenes at Stronger by Science? Sure, let's do it. Why don't you kick off uh, this particular question? Yeah, so uh, one of our listeners asked, what happens behind the scenes of Stronger by Science? Um, we're a small, scrappy company that is uh, trying to compete with the big boys, I guess. And the only way we get that done is through massive amounts of verbal and physical abuse. Like, uh, sometimes you got the stick, sometimes you got the carrot. And I don't particularly like carrots. Um, It's interesting because like myself, Eric and Lindsay are co-owners of Stronger by Science. So we don't necessarily have a boss that everyone reports to. Um, So it's less like someone with a stick using it on everyone else and more just like a circle of stick usage. Um, So, yeah, it's a it's a, a very toxic but also productive work environment, I would say. Uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, there's a certain amount of anger and animosity and discomfort that really puts you in the sweet spot in terms of, of creativity. Yeah, you know, for, there's, there's for a, sure. a lot of tension and no one feels comfortable really letting their guard down. I do my best work when 
I don't have burning resentment because, you know, that's that's a distraction. You don't want that when you're working. But just like low level seething resentment, that's uh that that's what really puts me in the right mind space to get stuff done. Perfect. Yeah. No, realistically, you know, like you said, it's a small company, right? I mean, there's there's the three of us plus Oswald. Plus um, Oswald. Oswald the dog. Um most of the time, I'd say we're sitting at the desk and looking over papers that we're going to cite in an article, or maybe we're writing about it for mass or whatever the case may be. And invariably, we'll start complaining uh, <laughs> pretty frequently. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we'll come across something that's really good and we'll say like, wow, that's pretty cool. Good stuff. But we, we do a lot of low level uh, complaining, N- you know. Not super worked up or upset about it, but just like, oh, this again. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we, you know, we talk it, about more research complaining and, with a sense of resignation. Yeah. Because I, like all of the shit we see, we've seen a million times before and we're like, oh, it's uh, it's our good buddy confusing standard errors and standard deviations. You know, it's it's like an old friend that you don't particularly <laughs> like. Exactly. But one of the things. So this is my first. uh job out of school right so like i did undergrad master's phd all in a row and then started doing this one of the things that i find really interesting about our day-to-day operations is because there are so few of us it's like every person has this weird mixture of input on really big picture stuff but also handles like really mundane tasks like just the the mixture of huge big picture stuff and really tiny insignificant detail stuff is it, it's such a broad range of tasks that we do. Um, and even just like the tasks themselves, right? So like uh, obviously like writing and coaching and audio editing and like just the, the different hats that you wear when you work at such a small operation is, is really fun, I think. I, I like being able to have a, a really rich mixture of tasks that are so different. You know, because like, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm very introverted. I'm not gonna lie. I kind of like when I can just edit some audio for a few hours and, and just kind of block everything else out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean that's that's the day to day, right? We just kind of read research and write stuff and do audio and and that's it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, if someone's interested in what my day to day looks like, uh, I'm generally working by 9, 9.30. And then I use the morning when, you know, my brain's kind of getting woken up and I'm getting in a groove to uh, just like respond to stuff. I have a big list of places where people might try to get in contact with me. Um, So, you know, email, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, see if people have like requested any of my papers on ResearchGate, uh, look at comments and see if we're getting a lot of uh, like back, like links from other websites, like just checking website traffic and comments. Um, and so like I do all of that in the morning. Uh, and so if uh, <laughs> if I ever sent you a message and seemed like I was in a bad mood, I probably was. I'm not a morning person. Uh, I... I am generally not as annoyed or surly as I might come across in uh, online communication. <laughs> I mean, even <laughs> even outside of the morning hours, though, that is your kind of 
your digital communication style in messages, yeah, you do tend to be a little bit more short with your with oh, your language. Yeah. So the the first few times that that we started like interacting <laughs> via like text message or Facebook message, I was like, damn, Greg's like, is he upset in general or is he mad at me? Like I didn't do anything. Um, but that's just kind of the way you you talk. Well, so yes. Uh, reason for that is um, I, so I, I do that stuff from about nine nine thirty to twelve, and so I've got like two and a half three hours of just people to respond to about random stuff pretty much every day, and uh, you know it's a lot of time. And if I wrote like full long polite responses to everyone instead of being two and a half three hours it would be like five or six hours Mm -hmm. uh and and like i just simply can't do that and i I have like this almost pathological need to respond to everyone um and i think like part of that is just kind of like how i think it's like based on my experiences as a young person who was interested in fitness and powerlifting. Um, Cause like, you know, I would look up to people and I would have questions for them or feedback or whatever else. And I get up with them and like, you know, 80% of the time they would just like ignore it. And you know, that didn't like ruin my self concept or anything, but like, I didn't like it. It wasn't fun, you know? And so like, I try to not do that to other people. And so <laughs> We, uh, <laughs> the, the reason we started the Q&A segment of the regular podcast actually was so when people ask questions, I could just be like, ah, well, fill out the Q&A form and we'll maybe address it on the podcast. Uh, I just like forgot about that within about two weeks and just went back to responding to everyone again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so my online communication style, people do always think I'm mad at them and I'm, I'm generally not. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just like, I have to be quick and efficient if I'm going to be able to respond to everyone who wants a response about stuff. Uh, a, a lot of people say when they meet me, they're surprised at how talkative and effusive I am. Cause they're just like, Whoa, this is, this is not the vibe I got from like chatting with you on Instagram pro tip though. If you want me to seem less annoyed when I'm responding to you, don't message me on Instagram. Don't mess. Don't don't fucking text me. Uh, <laughs> that might take a while to get a response. I hate text. Dude, I haven't texted you in like probably two years. Thank you. There's no I point. appreciate that. Um, but yeah, like anything that primarily functions on mobile. Uh, so Instagram does have it, it. You can access messages on desktop now, but like it's still kind of glitchy, I think. Um, but yeah, hit me up on Facebook or send me an email. Uh, I can type a lot more, a lot faster if I have a keyboard than if I have like a mobile keyboard. <laughs> um, so yeah, my my Facebook messages are probably like six times longer than my Instagram messages because I refuse to type a long message on my phone. Like I'm just not going to do it. Yeah, that's fair. And I'm not surprised to hear what you mentioned, like that people are a little bit surprised when they meet you in person, because in person you are very, I mean, several deviations from, from the, the median or the mean when it comes to just general jolliness, (laughs) like you, you are a a far above average jolly fellow (laughs) 
and, and quite outgoing. Yeah. But your your online communication style, especially like you mentioned on certain platforms, is very far the other direction. Very brusque. Yeah, very brusque. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But but I could understand why somebody would be like, what? <laughs> Who, who did I message online? Like, yeah. who is the intern who's having a bad day answering these messages for you? Yeah, no, it's always me responding. And I, I swear to God, I, I don't hate you as much as it seems like I do. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, you want to talk about some sports? Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk uh, sports. Oh, a- actually, I, w- I started with something and then got sidetracked. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, if you want to know what my day-to-day looks like, it's responding to stuff until about noon. Uh, and then I take like a 30-minute to an hour lunch break um, where generally I'll eat something, maybe stretch a little bit, just kind of like hang out. And then from 12.30 or 1 until uh, 5 on a short day, 6 on a long day, um, I try to work on kind of more important big picture stuff. So first half of the month, that's writing mass. Uh, Second half of the month, that's just like various other things. So uh, the programs we put out, like that's, I worked on those during the afternoons. Um, If I'm like putting a talk together, that's like, I'll work on that during the afternoon. Um, We're writing some books. So like when... Other stuff is ticked off my to-do list. Like I'll work on my book in the afternoon. Um, so yeah, like a- afternoon is kind of like more important, long-term, big-picture stuff. Uh, but yeah, that's what that's what my days look like these days. Uh, and then generally, still maybe like twice a month uh, when Lens goes to bed, I'll put in uh, like five or six hours on something overnight. Uh, just like if stuff is backed up and I need to get something done during school, that was probably like three nights a week. Um, and now it's like two or three nights a month. And that's, that's very doable for me. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of what my, my work day slash month looks like. Dude, when we first started hanging out regularly, (laughs) I actually didn't quite know you at all. Like that was a, that was a. Don't you think it's fair to say that was a fully different version of Greg? It was definitely a much more depressed version of Greg. Yeah, dude. Yeah, you. Whatever light is currently behind your eyes was fully extinguished. Yeah, at that I, time. I was. I was in a dark place. <laughs> yeah, I mean the you were probably averaging ten hours of sleep a week. Uh during my thesis project, yeah. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, yeah, otherwise it was probably averaging four to five hours a night, closer to four. Uh, but but generally that would take take the form of just alternating all-nighters. Yeah, so yeah. I'd pull an all-nighter, I'd sleep about eight hours the next night, pull an all-nighter, sleep about eight hours the next night, which, which sounds crazy, Um I actually felt and functioned way better doing that than if I just slept four hours every night. Because mm-hmm. uh, w- when I do that, there's a like one day of poor sleep, I'm I'm perfectly fine. Uh, two days, like things are quite a bit worse. And then like if I don't recharge and get a full night of sleep at some point, it's I just like 
slowly descend and it just gets worse and worse on a day-to-day basis and so with with the schedule i was keeping where it was like alternating sleep all nighter sleep all nighter basically i'd have one good day one bad day uh instead of all bad days um which you know doesn't sound great but it uh (laughs) 50 percent bad days is it turns out fewer bad days than 100 percent bad days so it got the job done. Uh, that should be like one of those motivational posters that are supposed to <laughs> brighten your day. Yeah. 50% bad days ain't so bad. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I I work less now than I think I have in my entire adult life. Um, I put in probably 50 hours a week, give or take 45, 50. Uh, during school, I was putting in 50, 60 on the business. Uh and then also was a full-time grad student. Yeah. And it uh, doesn't work out. <laughs> Does not work out. All right. Uh, sports. Do you want to... Generally, yeah, in favor. Yeah, cool. So a uh, person asks, if you were to compete in a sport that was neither a strength sport nor one of the big four or five spectator sports of the Western world, parentheses, football, soccer, baseball, etc., what would it be and why? Yeah, so I've got two answers. Okay. Um, one would be like, so it's hard to be good at a sport, right? So you basically have to decide for someone like us, like, what would you least suck at? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like sports are highly skilled endeavors. So which one would I be least bad at? Well, it said if you had to compete in a sport, it doesn't necessarily say go pro in a sport, just compete in it. Yeah, okay. Well, my, my answer still works. Okay. So the realistic one would be wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrestled. It's not a, a big spectator sport, but it was great. I enjoyed it. I don't think I would enjoy it as much now. Uh, you know, time has been unkind to me. I don't know if, if I still have it in me. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it was a fun sport. But, man, I it, when, when you try to take wrestling to a high level, mm-hmm. so, like, go watch a high school wrestling tournament. A lot of points. Someone's going to win 14 to 6. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of pins. Go watch a college match. Like two really good teams. 3 to 2. Mm-hmm. 2 to 1. When you get to that level, it becomes... No one makes mistakes. It becomes so difficult to score a point in any way. And so the the really paradoxical thing about wrestling is the higher the level gets, the worse it is to watch. Because mm-hmm. it just looks like a couple people that aren't doing much, but they're actually doing a billion things impossibly quickly and with such proficiency that no one has an opening. Is that still the case with you? Like, I, I know a little bit about wrestling, but not much. Uh, and, and I feel like I would miss a lot of the really cool stuff that people are doing. Like, as someone like you who knows a lot about wrestling, is it still boring to watch like that level of defensive play? So, like, the wrestling hipster answer would be, oh, the highest level's the best. It's the nuances (laughs) and the intricacies. But realistically, no, man. I like seeing the fireworks. Mm -hmm. Like, what's really fun is two people that are skilled but sloppy. 
mm-hmm. two really skilled wrestlers who just go for it and just swing for the fences. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will see that sometimes, uh, you know, at like collegiate national tournaments and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some really exciting wrestlers to watch, no question. But you do get a lot of those those matchups at the really high levels where it's just two people who are never going to give an inch, who are just perfect, and there's not going to be an opening. It's somebody's going to win two to one, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so wrestling, I've, I've wrestled some people that actually were like Olympians and like, you know, international level talent. And I'm going to tell you, it wasn't fun. It's, (laughs) it's fine to watch, but man, some people are just, some people are good at making you hurt Mm -hmm. as, as it turns out. So yeah, wrestling would be the answer that like, if you were to tell me, Hey Eric, you got to join a team or something right now. I'd say, okay, is there any wrestling going on? That's what I would do. But my my other answer of like what I would be just impossibly bad at but would love, mm-hmm. I would just pretend I was being competitive and do alpine skiing. I love going skiing. It is so much fun. I didn't start until like maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm garbage at it. But I, I could go on for hours explaining why skiing is the best hobby. It's perfect, man. I love cold weather. I love snow. You're outside. I mean, it's always picturesque. You, mm-hmm. It looks like you're like living in a postcard. It's just the, and, and there's like a little physical component as well. It's the best hobby. So I would say, oh yeah, I'm a super competitive skier and I would just be last place at everything because I suck. Sweet. What about you? Uh, Probably ping pong. So I'm, I mean like I'm good. I'm not great. Uh, if I'm playing someone else who's like a recreational ping pong player, I almost always win. Like, I don't think I've lost a game of ping pong since freshman year of college. Uh, but also around that same time, which is when I was at my best, uh, there were a few people who were very good at ping pong. So, uh, there was this guy, Daniel, who, oh man. I'm probably going to get canceled for this. He was from somewhere in Latin America, and I can't remember which. Like, I can't remember which country. But, like, he was from some Latin American country, and he was an alternate for their, like, Olympic ping pong team. So he never actually competed at the Olympics, but he was, like, next guy up if, Mm -hmm. like, their main guy couldn't do it. And uh, so, I mean, like... I know what really, really good ping pong players are like, and uh, I probably played Daniel over a hundred games. Like we played so much fucking ping pong because, like, next to Daniel, I was the next best person in the dorm, and so he liked playing against me because I was the only person who was even close to challenging him. But also, like, of the hundreds of games we played, like we played, you know, to twenty one. I don't think I ever beat him and I only I think I only broke 15 like twice and I think I only broke 10 maybe like a dozen times so just a a completely different level so I don't think I could ever be like good good like international good at ping pong but I'm pretty good at ping pong and uh I fucking love it like it's so fun uh it's ping pong and basketball are the two sports where if there are people near my skill level to play with, I will completely lose track of time and would be incredibly content just playing for an entire day. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, 
I can't say basketball because that's one of the big spectator sports. So I'd, I'd probably have to say ping pong. Yeah. I've told you the story. I had some roommates in college that uh, they got a ping pong table mm-hmm. and uh, they played all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, every day. And I would, I wasn't as into it as everybody else. So I'd, I'd jump in from time to time, but they took such an exponential curve in terms of their skill development because yeah. they were, I mean, the practice was just constant. Mm-hmm. And so every time I like checked in, and like played a game, yeah. I would lose my more and more and more and more until eventually it was just like, this doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Why, why would I pick up the paddle? Yeah. Um, now, a related question here. What sport is the most fascinating to you or the most unbelievable to, to reach like a top level in? Yeah. So uh, actually, I want to go back and clarify my answer a little bit. So okay. I, I flexed a little bit and I flexed a little too hard. Okay. Um, so it has been a long, long time since I've lost a game of ping pong, but I don't want to make it sound like I play all the time. Like I've probably played ping pong maybe eight times since freshman year of college because I moved into a different dorm without a ping pong table. Uh, and you just don't have that many opportunities to play ping pong in day-to-day life, unfortunately. I went to a party one time and some people were like, oh, let's play some pong. And I got super excited. Turns out they were talking about beer pong and I have never been more disappointed in my life. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, so like I'm super rusty. I can still beat other people who are very rusty. 19-year-old Greg would kick the shit out of me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, ping pong's cool. So, okay, what sport is most fascinating to me or most unbelievable to watch at the top level? Uh, so I have three. Two of them might be somewhat expected, and the last one probably isn't. So... I think the the most ridiculous sport to watch top level in is badminton because like I've played badminton and I'm fucking terrible at it, which is crazy because like I like racket sports. Like I'm not good at tennis, but you know, I'll go out there and swing the racket and I, unless I'm playing someone good, like I can get the ball over the net. Like I can keep a rally going. Uh, I'm pretty good at ping pong badminton seems like it would be a similar skill set and it's just not like i'm trash at badminton and i don't understand how people can be so good at it and also just watching them not only do they hit the the shuttlecock super hard the 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 defensive players how are their reflexes so good like you're watching it on tv or like streaming it i can't even see the shuttlecock half the time but like these motherfuckers are reacting to it and like you know, digging it. I don't know if dig is the right term. Like that's what it would be in volleyball. Like they're digging it like 80% of the time. And I'm like, how the hell are you doing that? It's outrageous. Um, so yeah, I find uh, top level badminton fascinating and I can't even conceive of how they're that good. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I took a, a badminton course during undergrad in college mm-hmm. and the instructor could not have weighed 105 pounds Mm -hmm. there was no possible way but i mean she was like a force on the badminton (laughs) court like you you would just be afraid to even like stand on the other side of the court because she would hit it a thousand miles an hour Mm -hmm. i could i couldn't believe the amount of power that she would generate when she hit it it was it was unbelievable yeah uh next would probably be gymnastics both male and female gymnastics uh 
takes so much strength, so much skill, so much coordination. Um, like, I, I don't know what else there is to say. Like, top-level gymnastics are absolutely outrageous. I have no idea how they do what they do. Uh, and and the last one, th- this is probably the one people wouldn't expect, is uh, Super Smash Brothers Melee. Competitive <laughs> Melee, if you've ever played any Smash game, is outrageous. Because, like... Uh, the development cycle was rushed, and so there are some facets in the game that, like, the devs knew about, but, like, didn't think would be all that useful that they just didn't patch out. Uh, and so, like, there's a lot of stuff that's, like, slightly glitchy, but actually works really well for top-level competitive melee. Um, and just, like, the actions per minute that they're inputting to make the characters do what they do is fucking outrageous. Um, and, like... I'm decent at uh, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, which is like the newest game in the series. And everything after Melee removed all of those like high level options. And so like to be good at a current Smash game just doesn't require as much motor skill as the old ones did. Like it's it's more strategy and like conditioning your opponents. Like it's it's more of a chess match, whereas like Melee's fucking trench warfare. And uh Top-level Melee players are so ridiculously good. Uh, And also, like, Melee just runs on a faster engine. Um, Like, the whole game is faster. uh, Fall speed's faster. It takes takes so much skill. And if you've never played Melee before, you wouldn't have any concept for just, like, how fucking good they are. But, like, Jesus Christ. Top-level Melee is insanely entertaining. I'm going to be honest. When I saw that on the outline, I assumed that Melee was some... <laughs> I assumed it was some obscure sport mm-hmm. that I had never heard of, but I was like, oh, I'm going to learn something new today. This will be cool. I'm going to get uh, you know, enriched with some some knowledge of a maybe a sport with some cool culture behind it, and uh, I did not know Melee was a video game. It is, yeah. But I mean, video games are sports these days, right? They are. Yeah, eSports. Yeah. Fair enough. I'm not a big video game guy. Uh, I, is that the the game that I played with you pre one one time? You Melee? played you played Ultimate. Ultimate. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that alone was was a bit too much for me to handle. Um, <laughs> I didn't do well. Okay. What are what are yours? Um, yeah. So to me, w- one of the things that I always try to remind myself whenever I see I don't watch a lot of uh, what Americans call soccer. Rest of the world calls it football. I don't watch a lot of it, but when the World Cup comes around, you know, you're going to you're going to tune in. Mm-hmm. Whenever I see someone who's a standout soccer player uh, at, at the international level, I always remind myself the enormous talent pool of, of global soccer players. Oh, yeah. Like to me, that that's the thing, like the probability of being good enough at soccer with that global talent pool to actually be a standout at the international level is really mind blowing. Mm-hmm. So for me, just the numbers behind that, I, I, I can I never get over how incredible you have to be relative to the average person. Yeah. You know? Another the, thing that the other thing I'll add about soccer as well is like uh when you think about other sports that have also really big talent pools I feel like there's a bit of I feel like there's a bit more filtering because like uh physically soccer players 
I think do tend to be a little bit taller than average, but they t- they tend to not have like super extreme body types. Mm-hmm. And so like if there's probably billions of people who have tried soccer, it's not like there there's a filtering process where it's just like, hey, because you're too short, you can't possibly be good. Uh, and, and when so like probably the two most popular sports in the U.S., are football and basketball, maybe baseball. And I guess baseball would be similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also doesn't select for as extreme of a body type, except for pitchers. Um, but yeah, with basketball, it's like there's a lot of people that play basketball. But in terms of making it to the NBA, you'll occasionally see someone who's like six foot, six one succeed. And like there have been a couple people who are five something. Right. Like there was Spud Webb, there was Muggsy Bogues. But like you can name all of them. Yeah. <laughs> which says a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But for the most part, it's kind of like you have to be this tall to ride this ride. Like yeah, there yeah. is theoretically a large talent pool of people trying to get in. But like s- people who are six three are pretty fucking tall. Like if you see someone six three in day to day life, you're like, oh, that's a tall person. Th- they are considerably taller than most people I know. Right. But like they'd probably be the shortest guy on the court. Um. And so, yeah, w- with soccer, it's also like. It's a combination of the huge talent pool and the fact that, like, there's not as extreme of a filtering mechanism. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think in many countries, there's also not as extreme of a filtering mechanism when it comes to socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a huge barrier to entry in the sport where, like, you know, there are some sports where I know, at least in America, it's like if you don't have money, it's hard to really get your foot in the door and and play at a young age. So I, I think soccer is just so accessible on so many levels that, yeah, the, the talent pool is enormous. I have no idea what the socioeconomics of soccer look like around the world. In I don't know. The, in the U.S., dude, soccer is still a fucking expensive sport. It, it is in the U.S. big time. Yeah. Americans have just figured out how to make every youth sport as expensive as possible. Soccer is expensive. Baseball is expensive. Football was expensive when I was a kid. D- didn't you say you went to a wrestling camp that was like thousands of dollars or or that you knew about one oh there's all sorts of wrestling camps like that yeah the one i went to was a little on the cheaper side but we also slept on the mats (laughs) (laughs) we were we were we were in a barn in july yeah with no air conditioning sleeping on the mats yeah so you it's hard to charge a premium for that yeah i i mean like so so you talked about how like how expensive it is to get noticed in some sports. I, I mean, like that's how sometimes like great talent slips through the cracks. Yeah. Uh, like Mike Trout, probably the best baseball player today. Um, and if not, like certainly the best position player over, over the last decade or so. Uh, you can make a case for, for some other people like in this season. Uh, but yeah, incredibly good. Has been good for a long time. Was good f- from the moment he entered the minors. But uh it was like his parents wanted him to have a more normal life. And so I'm pretty sure he did play like AU, USSA ball, but like didn't travel to all of the big showcase tournaments where like all of the scouts were going to be. And so, you know, when he was in high school, he was playing against good competition and fucking murdering them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, because his parents didn't want baseball to turn into like a $30,000 a year sport for a teenager. Uh, he just didn't get the looks that he could have and should have. And like, you know, now he has something ridiculous. It's like a $400 million contract. So like, he's going to be fine. Yeah. But I'm sure that there are players who 
aren't quite as good as Mike Trout, who probably just like slip through the cracks and don't get drafted, don't get the opportunities they should have, just because like either their parents were unable to shell out that kind of money, and it's a lot of money, uh, or we're just like unwilling to because it's it's like, dude, you're fucking fourteen. I'm not gonna spend <laughs> three grand every other weekend for you to fly to some big showcase. Yeah. Now I, I will admit I've made some assumptions when I was thinking about socioeconomic barriers. I was just thinking, do you have the equipment to play ball? Oh, and, you know, with with soccer, it's like no. I I was I was you roll thinking, out a ball in, in the you know if someone in your neighborhood has a ball, everybody's yeah. good. No, but I, I was I, thinking I like even, all of the scouting infrastructure and yeah, shit for I'm, U.S. sports. Yeah, thinking of that side of it, I know soccer in America is pretty expensive because they do a lot of the big showcase tournaments. It's like a lot. But yeah. I don't know if that's the way it is internationally. So someone so, will have to educate me on that. So I think that there are, I know at least in some countries there are like development academies and I have no idea what the process of getting into one of those looks like, you know, if, if it's just like open tryouts or like if the like payers, parents have to like play for them, like it's a private school. Um, I, I could see that in some countries being an economic barrier, but I, I just don't. I don't know what the economics of development academies look like. Yeah, I have no idea. But yeah, so soccer, I think, is if you can stand out that much with that many talented people playing soccer globally, I think that's incredible. Another thing that kind of blows my mind is, you know, back in the day when I was a kid, they would play this on ESPN, like during the day in the summer. Mm -hmm. But all of the billiards type sports, like you, you would turn it on and you would see people playing pool or playing like you know throwing darts or bowling or something those little skills that like you know you go to a bar on saturday night there's a dart board or a pool table like we all know how hard it is to do that stuff efficiently mm -hmm. and when you watch like you ever watched professional players playing pool they're very good Dude, if you miss you're done like generally yeah yeah like it, if, uh, unless you hit a awesome safety yeah. Like if you're playing like eight ball or nine ball and like, you know, you don't have a shot, you, you might be able to set up a good safety. Yeah. But I mean, it is, it's not like when you're playing with your buddy and it's back and forth and back and forth. It's like, if you miss a couple shots in a game, you can almost be certain that you lost that game. Mm -hmm. Like that, the precision of, you know, professional dart throwers or bowlers or pool players. I just find that to be incredible because I've tried that skill and it is really hard. <laughs> like, I've tried all those things. Yeah. I don't understand how they're that good at it. Okay. Have you ever watched Snooker? N what is that? Uh, so, someone might be about to come in and correct me here. But, like, from from watching a little bit of it, to me at least, it seems like pool on hard mode. Um, so, it's a similar thing. Like, you're hitting, ball, you're hitting balls with a cue and, like, you're trying to, like, make them in the pockets. But, like there's there's a lot of balls going on and like i think some of them have to be hit in particular pockets and like i think they have to be pocketed in a particular order and also if memory serves the actual pockets are smaller on a snooker table and so you have to be even more precise um so like i didn't even know snooker was a sport like i don't think anyone plays snooker in the u.s like maybe maybe in the northeast like i've I've heard some of my family from New Jersey like reference snooker before, but like no one plays snooker in the South. Uh, but I just so the the YouTube algorithm 
uh, recommended me one time, like, the best career plays of Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's, like, one of the all-time snooker greats. Uh, And I was like, okay, whatever. I'll check this out. What's going on here? Dude, it was really fucking impressive. Uh, so yeah, if, if you enjoy watching top level, top level pool treks, you should, uh, you should check out snooker at some point. I'll have to do that. You know, one other kind of random highlight reel that really caught my attention that I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. If you've never watched sumo highlights, dude, sumo is a very fun sport to watch. So me and Lindsay were actually talking about this recently sumo highlights are fun to watch yeah i don't think i'd ever want to go to a sumo tournament why is that so i'm probably going to get some of the details wrong here and there's there's probably going to be some sumo enthusiasts who uh who who email us very upset but I, i think like the broad strokes of what i'm about to describe are correct so sumo highlights what you're seeing is a whole sumo match when someone's back hits hits the mat, I guess it's not a mat, but like when someone's back hits the ground or there's a ring out, like that's it. You know, they're not doing best of five or anything. And so you see those highlights, they're like five seconds, maybe 10 seconds if it's a particularly long match, that's it. Uh, and then with sumo, like there's there's like a ritual that they go through before each match. And so like a tournament might have uh like 30 sumo wrestlers in it um and so there's going to be 15 matches a day and they have to go through like a relatively long ritual every single time before the match starts and so you know a lot of people complain about american football because there's you know maybe six seconds of action followed by like 30 seconds of downtime so sumo it's similar there's like five to ten seconds of action followed by like minutes and minutes of downtime, like way, way more than the NFL. And a sumo tournament lasts for, I believe, 15 days. Whoa. So I'm pretty sure there are four a year. Um, And like, you know, for top level sumo, I don't know about like lower levels, but for top level sumo, I'm pretty sure there are four tournaments a year. Each wrestler uh, wrestles once per day and it's, you know, five or 10 seconds. And so uh, when last I checked, the number one Yokozuna in the world was Haku Hosho. Uh, so if you're a big Haku Hosho fan, you're going to get like five to 10 seconds of action today. You're going to sit through the rest of it. You come back tomorrow, you get another five to 10 seconds of hot sumo on sumo action. And then like you do that for two weeks straight. Um, and also like, you know how painful it is to sit through the off season in football. It's like, okay, you know, there were yeah four or five months of games, but like now I have to wait for like six months for football to come back. Yeah. That's like the life of a sumo fan because you get approximately two weeks of action and then you have a full off season. You have three months off before sumo comes back. And so like, yes, sumo highlights are very cool sumo wrestlers are insanely good athletes but i think that it would be very frustrating to be uh like a huge huge sumo fan yeah you'd have to develop a very different level of just patience with the sport yeah that'd be challenging um all right do you want to move on from the realm of sports let's do it do you want to you want to skip this one and go to the next two uh sure why not 
Yeah, let's go into that. This is an interesting question. I I have to assume we've at least kind of touched on this at some point during the podcast, but I made a YouTube video about it back in the day and people got ass mad about it. Oh God. <laughs> why did they get mad? So, okay. The question is why we've stayed steroid free or yeah. the prompt, I should say. So why did people get mad last time you talked about this because the last time i talked about it it was not that long after i set my last world record and so it was just and this was also like kind of at the peak of fake natty hysteria yeah and people were like <laughs> mccarthyism in the yeah in the fitness space. yeah and, and so people were like uh like you're just trying to deflect like the fact that you made this video counts as an admission that you're on a lot of shit um but yeah i don't know We'll see how this goes. Well, this is going to suck for me because no one's going to believe that I'm natural <laughs> with, with my physique. Come on. What? Uh, so what What are your reasons? You can kick this one off. Yeah. So it's I know I've mentioned this part on the show before. Um, when I was like 18, I got to college and just ate everything in sight and lifted like most hours of the day. Mm -hmm. Got some quick gains and. I didn't read much at the time. I assumed that that would continue linearly almost forever. And so like I got it in my head at the age of about 18 and a half, like I could be like a Jay Cutler Lee Priest type physique. <laughs> um, reality brought me back down to earth eventually. But there was a moment there where I was like, what if I just leaned into this hard and just like said, you know what? The drugs. Yes. Whatever you're offering, all of it. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and, and then did some reading before before I made that jump because it's a pretty serious jump to make. Yeah. Um, and for me, it really just came down to at the time, pro hormones were all over the market or I mean, they were just essentially oral anabolics, basically. But you could go the route where you got, you know, the legal stuff mm -hmm. that was on the shelves at supplement stores. But that stuff, based on everything I was reading, was like awful for your liver yeah and i was like mm, i know i'm young but like i might live a while and i want to have a liver the whole time yeah you know and so that was like kind of i wasn't really fond of that idea of doing the legal stuff and then the illegal stuff to me based on what i was reading seemed like it actually might be kind of the healthier route <laughs> but i didn't want to be committing like pretty serious crimes all the time like I wasn't I didn't think it was ethically or morally wrong mm -hmm. as long as you're not like cheating right so if you're if you're doing steroids and then competing naturally I do think that's an unethical thing yeah but if you're not cheating anybody in the process and you're just you know doing steroids I didn't see that as a moral issue yeah but I was just like yeah I don't I'm not comfortable with the legal liability of you know obtaining steroids all the time I was also really put off. I, I started reading on forums and stuff that you had to like actually think about what you were doing. Mm -hmm. Like, how are you going to manage your cycle and your, you know, post cycle therapy? And I was like, dude, this seems like a lot of work and thinking. I don't yeah. want to do any of that. So it was a combination of not being ready to become an amateur endocrinologist and <laughs> not wanting to take stuff that was going to just wreck my liver and not wanting to take on the legal liability of having to actually obtain and possess steroids as a controlled substance. So mm -hmm. for me, that was really it. It was, it was a matter of uh, the effort involved, the liability involved, the potential health ramifications, and honestly, the cost. Mm -hmm. I was a college student when I was 
at the age of where I was like, oh, maybe I'd think about it. I didn't have any money. So even if I, even if the other things didn't deter me, I wouldn't have been able to afford it anyway. Yeah. So, so that was pretty much it for me. What about you? So for, for me, the, the liability was definitely a big one as well. Um, so one of the things that I think a lot of people don't consider is like, oh, okay, like if you're going to do gear, what type of gear are you going to do and how much are you going to do? And then like, it's, it's one of those things where I'm a relatively extreme person by nature. And so like, I know, I know a fair amount of people who are on like just test and like a slightly higher than TRT dose of test. And by slightly higher, I mean like two or three times higher, but you know, like a quarter gram or like 300 milligrams of test per week, which is like, that's more than people are putting out naturally. Like they're getting some super physiological stuff going on, probably building a little more muscle than they otherwise would almost certainly building more muscle than they otherwise would. Uh, and like a lot of these guys are in their forties and like, they just found a very understanding doctor that was just like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll write you a pretty liberal TRT prescription. Um, and, and with stuff like that, one, like, you know, it's not like there are no risks, but risks are constrained to some degree. Uh, and two, if you were going that route, like basically very aggressive TRT test only route, um, and you were going through, you know, black markets, then if you got busted, you might actually have a pretty manageable liability. So if they busted you for possession, and especially if you have no priors, they're probably not going to come down on you super hard. Um, but the problem is, like, I know myself. I'm an extreme person. <laughs> if I were to do steroids for powerlifting, I would want to, instead of competing, like, relatively near the top of drug-free lifting, I'd want to compete near the top of untested lifting. Uh, and, like, more stuff is generally good, you know? Uh, and so going back to the liability thing... If you look at American drug laws and how, like, the amount of steroids you need to have for them to be able to pin possession with intent on you, it's like... Intent to distribute? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, It's less than a relatively aggressive steroid cycle. Like, most people who are taking high doses of stuff if they're planning like a 12-week cycle out if the feds knocked on their door when they were in like week two or three of their cycle they'd get them for possession with intent uh and that's serious jail time and so like like decades right it's it's a long time yeah yeah and so you know for me it's like i i mean i'm certainly not like opposed to trt and like if someone just wants to run a little bit super physiological to like get a little out of it their their liability is probably constrained i don't see a problem with that but like that's not me you know like yeah. that's uh, <laughs> I, I think if i was gonna go on i would go on you know what i mean yeah and so yeah one of the big things for me is like i don't want to get arrested and do decades because like i just wanted to get big um so that was one of the things another thing is um there are quite a lot of heart problems in my family like heart issues are what kill knucklesmen um and so like <laughs> i already have elevated risk for that uh and you know 
steroids uh, generally increase your risk of heart disease. And so like, I don't need to further increase my risk of heart disease. Like that's, that's one of the considerations. Um, that was one thing I wanted to add to my statement. The, the way that I phrased it made it seem like the pro hormones were bad. The steroids totally fine. I don't want to give that impression. Um, you know, there, there are definitely some, some, some health risks yeah. even w- with the injectables. Uh, another thing for me is like a lot of it's just like curiosity to see what I can do drug free. Um, so like I've, I've had, I I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I've had these numbers in my head for a long, long time. Like I want to squat and pull eight and I want to bench five. And I'm just really fucking curious to see if I can do that without drugs. Um, and like from, I mean, after I was in the sport for like two years, I've mostly lifted for myself. Like I don't, uh, like I, I'm not going to play the USLP, the, the USAPL game and like go to nationals and like try to qualify for worlds. Like I just, I have no interest in spending thousands of dollars and like taking a bunch of weekends and a shitload of time to compete all the time. Like if someone wants to go that route in powerlifting, I'm not going to yuck your yum. Like you do you. That's not why I lift. Like there are numbers I want to hit and I want to hit them for me. And so like, I don't want to take gear that would like cheapen those achievements for myself. Um, so like that is one of the considerations. Uh, another consideration going back to health stuff, um, is like the fact that steroids are, uh, are illegal means that like you have to assume the risks that come with buying stuff from the black market. Um, and, and the thing is like, just from talking to people who are in that world, apparently like some people are competent, good procurers and distributors of steroids. And, but like when you look at the, if you, when you look at the research of like, you know, scientists go and like procure a bunch of gear on the black market and then test and see what's in it. One of the issues you can have is like, you plan out a cycle, you get your stuff, your cycle's fucked because your stuff doesn't actually have the stuff in it that you thought it did, you know? Um, so like, that's, that's one problem. Another problem is like a lot of the, like a lot of the products that one could buy via the internet are like pretty heavily contaminated with stuff. Um, specifically heavy metals. So, you know, bunch of health problems there, potentially a bunch of brain problems there. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where like you need to, it's probably not a world to dabble in. Like you probably need to get in deep enough to make good enough relationships with like distributors that one could trust. And like, I didn't particularly want to venture into, I mean, I'm not saying it should be, but what it is now is essentially a criminal underworld. Um, just because of how drug laws in the U S work, I didn't want to have to like venture in deep enough that I could find a distributor that I trusted, you know, like if I was going to try something, I just want to like be like, ah, I'm just going to dabble. I'm going to buy something off the internet. But like, I wouldn't trust stuff that I just bought off the internet because those are risks associated with, with operating in a black market. Um, and then the last thing going back to, to health risks is when people think about health risks associated with steroids, they tend to think uh, heart issues, they tend to think liver issues, um, you know, other like more vanity related things that someone might think about is like baldness, acne, uh, 
like testicular shrinkage, stuff like that. The, the potential side effect of steroid use that scares me the most personally is um, there's some research that suggests that steroids have negative effects on the brain and on cognition. So keep in mind here, this is cross-sectional research. You could never... You, you would never get an RCT by an IRB. Like if you're like, hey, we want, we think that steroids, we think that steroids might rot your brain. Um, so we're going to recruit some people and give half of them a placebo and half of them a dose of steroids we think that might rot their brain and see if it rots their brain. Like no IRB is going to sign off on that. But the, the cross-sectional research that's out there suggests that uh, compared to like, matched controls that are matched across as many variables as possible. People who use steroids tend to have lower brain gray matter. Um, and like some, some, uh, like quantifiable aspects of intelligence are lower. So, you know, not like every facet of intelligence that one could quantify, but like some, I think specifically like verbal reasoning tends to be a little bit lower. Um, and so the thing is, like, you know, I'm, I'm not making a causal statement here. Again, there aren't RCTs like this is just from from cross-sectional research. Uh, but it's enough to scare me because, I mean, ultimately, I, I make my living with my brain and I make my living by writing. And so, like, <laughs> if they do uh, decrease brain gray matter and if they do. Uh, oh, and, and I'll just note as well, like. It's not only cross-sectional research, like it is known from like in vitro studies that high enough levels of androgens can be neurotoxic. Uh, It's also known that like some specific steroids, primarily thinking TREN here, TREN is directly neurotoxic. Um, And so like that, that bothers me, you know, Um, because ultimately I make my living with my brain. And if I got a lot bigger and stronger, but was able to do my job less well, uh, that wouldn't be great. And so that, that is another thing that has kept me away from steroids. Yeah. And I think it is important to say, you know, like I, I, I don't advocate for steroid use. I've never in my life been like, Hey, you know what you should do? Use steroids. Cause the, the health ramifications and the legal ramifications are enough for me to be like, yeah, not definitely not for me and nothing I'd feel comfortable recommending to anybody. Mm-hmm. But it's also like in the lifting world, some people use steroids. Yeah. I, I have zero problems with you using steroids. You yeah, know what I mean? I, like if you know the risks you're assuming and you're not cheating, I have literally no problem with you. Yeah. I, I want to reiterate that as well. Uh, absolutely no problem with steroid usage. If you want to do it, do it. I could not give less of a shit um, but yeah, just not for me. Cause you know, some people get this question. They, they kind of answer it from, uh, like a, a moralistic perspective. Yeah. Like, like Oh, I, I wouldn't possibly stoop to that. Like it, it's not at all that. Like, it, like I said, if, if you do steroids, I have literally no problems with you. You yeah. know, as long as you're informed about the risks you're assuming, just like anything, like I probably drink more than would be optimal for my health mm-hmm. you know what i mean like based on the numbers per week i'm probably a little over what i should drink yeah uh, i know that risk mm-hmm. i like bourbon and beer that's how it goes yeah you know so like i, I see it as the same thing you know well i, I mean so like it, i'll 
I'll feel comfortable sharing this, I think. Uh, at some point, once I hit the numbers I want to hit, uh, there's a part of me that kind of wants to just like lean down and get super shredded one time just to see what <laughs> yeah. just to see what it's like. Uh, what I don't want to do is I don't want to deal with like the uh, the low energy induced hypogonadism that comes with like getting that shredded. And so like an idea I've been bouncing around in my head is like, well, if I go that route, if things really start going south, I might just hit up an endocrinologist and be like, look, can you write me a TRT prescription like to finish this cut? Because like, dude, you know, it's one of those things I want to see what I look like to get super shredded. And I'm also I think I'd be fine dealing with the hunger like but a lot of the side effects that we've talked about that come with natural bodybuilding, they just sound fucking miserable. And I don't want to be a natural bodybuilder like I don't want to, to live that life. So like, yeah, I I have already considered maybe getting a little chemical help to get there. Like not super physiological levels, but like enough that like it's not like my dick won't work for six months, you know? And so like I, I, I don't think that that's dissimilar from, you know, someone who just like for the fun of it is just like, let's see how fucking thick, solid, tight I can get. And they want to run a bunch of gear like I don't I don't see a problem with that at all. Um, so, yeah. Now, you mentioned that you don't want to be a natural bodybuilder. Have you put any thought into being a natural classic bodybuilder? <laughs> uh, no. Okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you from, from being there, the hunger, it's fine. It's really not bad. The things that suck are, like you said, the low testosterone and the low thyroid hormone. Mm-hmm. Those two things, you're just, you're freezing all hours of the day, literally in the middle of July in North Carolina, freezing. And yeah, just living with low testosterone is not a fun way to live Yeah, at all. Uh, so this next question is kind of... I, <laughs> It's like kind of similar, I guess, right? It's along the along the lines of ergogenics. Sure. Um, so the question is, if you could take a pill to make you smarter, would you do it? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't even have to think about that. Of course I would. See, I so think I, you should think about it. So it, it, it would depend on the side effects. Like, you know, if it's like you can take a pill to make you smarter, but then like you're going to die in two years. Like, yeah, probably not. But if it's just like no strings attached, you take the pill, you get smarter, nothing else happens. Like, yeah, dude, for sure. So, okay, we we talked about this off air a couple like a few weeks ago, which is technically cheating, but um my initial answer was no. And you talked me out of it. I will admit you made some good points, but I my answer now is yes, but I have some reservations. I I still have some concerns. My question is, is this just making me smarter? Or is it making me have like superhuman intelligence? Mm -hmm. Because I think those are two very different things. Mm -hmm. If something was making me smarter to like to a degree I could control, like, oh, I'm going to up the dose and go for six capsules moving forward. Like if I had some control over it, I'd I'd like that. But if it was just like a thing that makes me superhuman smart, I think there would be some drawbacks there Mm -hmm. to some extent. Like I think... If you were that much smarter than every person around you, I think that could lead to some frustration. Like if you've ever tried to 
teach something to somebody to somebody that's just not getting it if you don't really have the patience of someone who's like made to be a teacher mm-hmm. it can be kind of frustrating and i do wonder if that would lead to a lot of frustration if just like if you were that much smarter than everybody everybody around you i could see that potentially being a little bit annoying and i also wonder if it would be and i'm talking about superhuman intelligence here I wonder if it would be difficult to socialize with people and really relate the same way Mm -hmm. if you were that much smarter. So like those are my initial thoughts. And that's why I was like, nope, I'm good. But you you did talk me into it, but I'm still a little bit concerned about those things. So so first, I think uh, I think we need to operationalize some terms. What what does it mean to be smarter? Like, how are we? How are we quantifying and operationalizing that? I don't know. Because like, so from, so kind of like on a mechanistic level, if you're talking like general intelligence, a lot of that seems to simply be how efficient your brain uses energy and just like how quickly it can churn through energy. Um, Because a lot of that relates to just like processing speed and power like a a computer analogy is a bad analogy for the brain but like that's what i'm going with like that that ultimately determines like your brain's processing power and like if your brain has greater processing power um one you can you can take in and assimilate information faster and then one of the um one of kind of the hallmarks of someone with high intelligence like one of the things they can do is they can contain more information in short-term working memory and and manipulate it better essentially so uh you, you know for example someone with really low intelligence you know, i'm not talking like someone who's just learning math but someone who just has like low intelligence might really really struggle to add a one digit number to a two digit number where you need to carry a one. Cause like you need to keep the two numbers in your mind. You need to like keep the carrying the one in your mind. And like, that's, that's like four or five like bits of information that they need to have in their mind that they need to be able to work with and manipulate. Uh, whereas someone who, I, I think there are actually like tricks to do this, like multiplying big numbers together, but assuming you don't know the tricks, um, someone with like, crazy crazy high intelligence might be able to multiply like two seven digit numbers together uh with like the same the same ease and speed that's it might take someone else to like add two three digit numbers together which is something that like most people can do but does take a fair amount of mental effort um and so like that's that's ultimately kind of what's going on with high intelligence. Like you can, you can assimilate information and like manipulate more pieces of information in your working memory or manipulate the same pieces of information in your working memory faster. Like that's, that's there, there are other facets of intelligence, but that seems to be like one of the biggest ones. I'm concerned because I'm particularly bad at the things you're describing right now. (laughs) I don't like that. We can cut that from the episode. <laughs> so here's my... Do, have you ever looked into, into any research? Like, are, intelli- are more intelligent people generally happier or more content? Have you ever seen research on that? I don't know about that. Uh, well, so... 
it kind of depends on what you're talking about because like it's hard to disentangle a lot of factors right um so people who people who have like outlier intelligence tend it tends to be associated with higher rates of men, of some mental illnesses um but then the question is like you know is it is it that there's like an underlying factor that might be causing those two things and that like the intelligence itself isn't related to the mental Ill- illness at all but there's right, like yeah. s- a common factor causing both of those right. things um, that would be very hard to try to untangle that. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing is like, I think happiness generally tends to increase with intelligence up to a particular point, but earning power tends to as well. And so like, that's also difficult to dis- to disentangle. Like, like the, the socioeconomic right, comfort level. Right. Yeah. Like what, what is causing what there? Yeah. And so like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you could strictly ascribe causality to anything going on there. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of my thing is like, I would definitely like to be more intelligent than I currently am. I just worry if, if you became that much of an outlier, you know, if this hypothetical pill gave you like superhuman intelligence, I wonder if that might be a a bit more isolating and a bit more frustrating than, than you might initially think. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if the, when you are like truly outlier superhuman smart if you would if you would regret that decision to take this fictitious pill i mean i don't know so i think the biggest question for me is like is it reversible like is this a pill it's not it's not i think i'd still send it (laughs) fair enough man yeah no you definitely talked me into it i just you would you would dive in head first and i would cautiously wade into the scenario but i'd still probably take it i think those are just like generalizable facets of our personalities (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's true that's definitely true all right let's uh let's shut it down well uh thank you for listening to this the eighth installment of the stronger by science fireside chat series um yeah thanks for tuning in if there are any topics you'd like us to address you can uh, fill out a form located at tiny.cc slash sbsqa to uh, submit those questions or topics. Um, if you like the show, feel free to rate it on iTunes or you know wherever you get your podcasts. If, if you don't like it, uh, you can also rate it. That's fine, I guess, but please don't. Um, and if you're listening on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe. It really does help. Um, and that's about it. Hope, uh, hope life is treating everyone well. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.